0: Will you pray with me? Dear Father God, you are the way maker. You are a miracle worker. You're the light in our darkness, and you create a path for us. We thank you that you've loved us so much to give your only son to die for us. And now you are our light, and you provide us Um, to be a light to others. And we confess that we don't always talk about you. We sometimes hide our light. And we ask you to forgive us for that. And just um, give us courage speak about you um, with our friends, with our neighbors, with those around us to shine our light brightly, even in the darkness in Silicon Valley. We pray that you would work here in our community, that you would prepare a way for your message to get across, that you would uh, soften hearts and that you would bring revival to our land. Help our church to be a bright light in Cupertino and uh, to those around us, and not just into Cupertino, but into the world, given so much of of us do reach uh, the world on a global basis with our work. And, Yeah, give us strength, give us courage, give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, before Sean comes up, I'm going to read our scripture reading today, which comes from Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Sean, can you tell us more about that?
1: All right, well thank you, Grace, and thank you, Dean. That was very moving, thank you. Well, good morning. My name is Sean Reese. I'm one of the pastors here, if you don't know me. And uh, today we continue our studies in the Gospel of John, where we are still on that remarkable weekend that changed the world. As I've been working through this text this week, I've been moved to ask how one calendar weekend only one weekend could possibly support so many cosmic events. It really was a weekend that changed the world. So today we are on the evening of that first Easter Sunday. This is the second of four resurrection appearances in the Gospel of John. And from John's narrative, Jesus has already appeared to Mary Magdalene at the empty tomb. Peter and John have seen the empty tomb, but they have not seen Jesus yet. And when Jesus appears to Mary, he commissions her to go tell all the other disciples that she has seen him. As we said last week, this has earned her the title of the Apostle to the Apostles. She's the first person sent with the gospel message. Later that day, Luke tells us that Jesus appears on the road to Emmaus to two disciples, Cleopas and a friend, probably his wife. In that text, the two disciples eventually invite Jesus into their house where Jesus serves them bread. And in the breaking of the bread, the two disciples recognize him as Jesus, and he disappears. He's alive in a whole new way, which explains the sudden disappearance. So that brings us to the evening of that first Easter Sunday. So I invite you into our text today, chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And we'll stop there for now. John begins our text today by reiterating, this is the first day of the week. But as we have previously said, it's also the first day of the new world. And we find those first followers meeting for the first time. This is the first meeting of the church. The first meeting of the church on that first resurrection day. But the reason for them meeting is not for worship. It's because they're afraid. (laughs) They've locked themselves in a room somewhere in downtown Jerusalem. Most people think this is the same room where they had met on that previous Thursday night. That Upper room. So imagine this picture. This is the new family of God. Jesus had just redefined the family of God last week, if you remember. And he had commissioned, as we said, he had commissioned Mary to go tell his brothers and sisters what had happened. And now, only a few hours later, they're gathered together behind locked doors. Afraid anxious, confused. Not that I blame them, but here's the church, a motley crew of notable failures. No matter what we think of the church in in the postmodern world, it will never be in a worse state than what John describes right here. It seems John and Peter have not been able to convince the other disciples of the empty tomb, and Mary's testimony must have fallen on deaf ears, and who knows about Cleopas and his wife. The church begins behind locked doors. As Ross Hastings has said, they would have been voted the group of human beings most unlikely to start a new world religion. (laughs) And what is even more ironic is that the word apostle means sent one. Here are the sent ones behind locked doors. Contradiction of being apostolic. And while they're processing, while they're trying to come to grips with what has happened, Jesus appears in the middle of them. Jesus had been crucified in the middle of that crucifixion scene. Here he appears in the middle of his disciples. Next week he'll appear again in the middle of his disciples. It seems that's where Jesus wants to be, right in the center of his disciples. And what we see here is that disciples immediately get reoriented when the risen Jesus comes. These disciples, fearful, anxious, and confused, locked away from the world, they get reoriented. Jesus shows up. And they get reoriented toward him at the center. I don't know about you, but I have to say in my life, I continually need reorientation like this. I need to keep coming back to the center of my faith, to Jesus. I think we as a community need to keep being reoriented back to Jesus, which is what we as a pastoral team try to do every Sunday morning. Every Sunday we aim to create services which reorient us back to the center, to the risen Jesus because that's that's what Sundays are for actually to reorient us again back to him Christ-centeredness is where we want to live and the first thing Jesus does is speak of course he's the word so he speaks and he says peace be with you shalom aleichem peace be with you it turns out that the last thing Jesus had said in that upper room was this I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation but take heart I have overcome the world and now that he has overcome peace be with you notice he doesn't command them He doesn't even shame them for not being there in his time of need. He simply offers the gift of peace. It's sheer grace. This new world is grounded in grace. Now, as you know, peace, shalom in the Hebrew, means a whole lot more than what we think of when we think of the word peace. Biblical shalom is not just the absence of war. That would be good enough right now in our world, wouldn't it? Biblical shalom means presence. It's the presence of wholeness and soundness and well-being. It's the full-orbed wholeness of life with God. Shalom is where things work the way they were designed to work. It's where all of our relationships work together the way they were designed to work. Beginning with our relationship with Him, with God. Once that relationship works, it makes all the other ones work the way they were designed to work. And although peace be with you is a common greeting in the Middle East, on the lips of Jesus... After the resurrection, it means a whole lot more. On the lips of anyone else, it means, I wish peace for you. But on the lips of Jesus, after the resurrection, it means, I'm giving you peace. I'm giving you God's shalom. As one person has said, for the first time in history, peace is no longer a wish, it's a fact. On the lips of Jesus, after the resurrection, peace be with you means, I am peace, and I now give it to you. True peace is now being given for the first time in history. And how appropriate, at this time, given the state of the disciples, Peace is the antidote to their trembling fear behind locked doors. Peace be with you. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Notice he then shows the disciples his hands and side as if to say, it's really me, which brings great joy to the disciples. They are overjoyed that it's really Him, This person who has entered the room through locked doors is really the person they saw die on the cross. The risen one is the crucified one. Their sorrow has been turned into joy. Then Jesus repeats himself, peace be with you. So it's peace be with you, he shows his wounds, peace be with you. Peace be with you, wounds, peace be with you. Now, why does he do this? Well, it's it's no doubt for physical identification. But there's so much more to these actions. Some of which the disciples may have realized in the moment, but some they probably had had to reflect on later. First of all, the wounds would have showed the disciples another identity of Jesus. Remember, as we've walked through these, the passion and the resurrection scenes, we've seen that Jesus is the true Son of the Father. He's the true King. He's the true High Priest. He's the true Lamb of God. He's the true Spirit Giver. And now, in this moment... The disciples would have realized that Jesus was also a Messiah of strength in weakness. He was a Messiah of strength in weakness. He was not a Messiah of power. Or nationalism. He was a Messiah that represented a God who suffers. Here is a God who will be known for self giving love, not dominating power. Suddenly, the disciples would understand as they looked at those wounds what kind of Messiah Jesus was. Secondly, the wounds identified Jesus' posture toward the world. It's not the posture of the pointing finger of condemnation. It's rather the outstretched, wounded hands of mercy. The welcoming hands toward a sinful world, inviting them to come. It's safe to come. It's safe to run right into the risen Lord in our sin because we run right into those wounds. No sin is so horrific or gross or shameful that those wounds cannot absorb it. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus And why the wounds in the first place? It's because of human sin. Paul in Corinthians says, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. On that cross, Jesus took up all of that sin and bore it as his own. And it doesn't matter what it is. He takes it up and bears it. Through those wounds, Jesus forgives and cleanses and heals and frees. Thirdly then, the wounds will identify the pattern of the disciples' ministry, namely self-sacrifice and self-giving love. If they're going to follow this God... They will need to find strength in weakness. If they're going to follow this God, their mission will not involve nationalism. It will not involve crushing the Romans. If they are going to follow this God, their mission will be one of self sacrifice and self giving love. And lastly, Jesus' wounds, of course. Are the source of peace. It is through those specific wounds, the wounds of the crucifixion, that peace is now declared for them and for the world. Because of those wounds, peace is now available, available for all. As Colossians says, for in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Humanity that can now experience peace, because of the cross. Many years before, Isaiah prophesied this peace through the suffering servant. What we read is our scripture reading. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. It's because of his wounds that peace comes. Peace is the great gift of Easter coming as a result of those wounds. It's through those wounds that we can have a peace that passes all understanding. It's striking to me that these words are spoken in the context of fear. Because recently I've had two friends share about their ongoing treatment for cancer. Not knowing what the future holds for them. But both of these friends told me that they have such joy and such peace. They have a peace that passes all understanding. They found this peace in the wounds. Well, next, Jesus sends them. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Over 40 times in the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks of himself being sent. God the Father is a sending God, and God the Son is, like his Father, a sender. And so this is the church's commissioning. You may have heard the title, the Great Commission, a title typically given to Jesus' command at the end of Matthew. Many people call this text John's version of the Great Commission. But, but we have to ask, could this motley crew of failures really do this? I mean, look at them, huddled in fear, behind locked doors. Surely Jesus doesn't think they could do this. Does he? Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now they can do it. Now they can go. Verse 22 receives a lot of ink because how does this verse correlate with the day of Pentecost in Acts? Is this Pentecost or is that Pentecost? Answer, I don't know. I don't know. John had been at Pentecost, but perhaps he wasn't aware of Acts being written. Perhaps he wants his book to be self-contained because Jesus had promised the Spirit would come. Maybe he's being proleptic, meaning he's just anticipating Pentecost. Whatever the case, the point Jesus is making here is that mission will not happen without the Spirit. It won't happen without the Holy Spirit the very life of God. The Holy Spirit is what makes us Christians. The Spirit, the great gift prophesied in the Old Testament as identifying the new age, and as I said, it's the great gift Jesus had promised the disciples in the upper room on Thursday night. Now it's interesting, the verb here for breathe is only used here in the New Testament. There are other words that John could have used, but he uses this rare word. But it is used several times in the Greek version of the Old Testament, of which two are noteworthy. One is Genesis 2. And we should say, of course. John's been drawing on creation imagery the whole way through these chapters. And in Genesis 2, God breathes the breath of life into the first human to become a living being. And here in John 20, we see an act of new creation where Jesus assumes the position of Yahweh, breathing his life into a new humanity, the church. And it occurs in Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel prophesies over a pile of dead dry bones, and before long, the bones rattle and they come together along with tendons and flesh and skin. But there's no breath. So Ezekiel's commanded to breathe into these bones to make them live. He does, and the dry bones come to life representing the people of God. John is wanting us to realize that on that first Easter evening, Jesus is breathing into being a new humanity empowered to go out into the suffering of the world to bring life. Jesus breathes on them the very power that brought him through the grave to enable them to enter the suffering of the world and serve that suffering world. Can't help but think of IJM. And what is at least part of this mission? Verse 23, it's that the church is being sent into the world to proclaim Jesus' work of setting sinners free. Freedom from condemnation, freedom from shame, freedom from bondage. Easter people are people sent into the world to share the good news that because of Jesus' wounds, the free gift of forgiveness is available for all. Now, John's word choice, again, (laughs) is amazing. The word here for forgive is the same word he uses in the Lazarus story. When Lazarus comes out of the tomb, Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Let him go. It's the same word used here for forgive. The free gift of forgiveness unbinds us and lets us go. That's what we proclaim to a suffering world. So the disciples are now prepared for mission from his wounds. They've received their marching orders and can now be sent ones. They can go in the power of the Spirit and take the good news of Jesus to a suffering world. And guess what? So can we. We're now prepared for mission from his wounds. We've received our marching orders as well. Peace be with you, Jesus says. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you, all of you, on mission all of you, on mission. So what does that look like? What, what do these marching orders look like for us today? Well, let's explore this a little bit. What comes to mind for you when you hear the word mission? Mission. Perhaps you think of cross-cultural missions going around the world to love on people in different cultures. Or perhaps you think of specific individuals who do those missions. We typically call them missionaries. Or perhaps you think of individual activities that the church does, and they're always asking you to participate in them. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to ask you to do anything today. But what I want to do is I want to help us understand this calling. The church's mission from Jesus' wounds. And the main thing to understand is this. The very essence of the church is mission. Why? Because our God is a missional God. It's simply who, part of who God is. Just as He is loving and just as He is holy, He is missional. God has always been on mission to restore and heal creation. In Genesis, God called Abraham to be blessed and then he sent him to be a blessing to all nations. In other words, God chose Abraham not at the expense of the nations, but in order to reach the nations, in order to heal the nations. And of course, Abraham's mission reaches its climax in Jesus. Because God so loved the world, he sends Jesus into it to save it. And then Jesus sends the Spirit to birth the church and participate in his mission. Participate. In his mission. So there's another P on our slide. If you can hit that next slide. Participation. That's our calling. That's what we do. As David Bosch, a famous missiologist, says, mission is understood as being derived from the very nature of God. It, it is thus put into the context of the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father sends the Son. And God the Father and God the Son send the Spirit. And this is expanded to include yet another movement. The Father, Son, and Spirit send the church, the whole church, into the world. We are all sent ones sent into the world to participate in God's mission. After all, we, the church, are here for the sake of there. We're here for the sake of the world. As someone has said, the church is the only organization that does not exist for itself. The very essence of the church is mission. Mission. It's mission. Mission then is not one of many activities that the church does. It's who we are. It's our identity because we serve a missional God. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Plural, you, you. One of our family values here at PBCC is participation in God's work. See, God is already on mission in this world and in people's lives, and we are sent to participate with him in his mission. So we gather every Sunday to be reoriented back to Jesus at the center, and then every Monday we're scattered were gathered and scattered, scattered into the world as missionaries. All of us missionaries serving the missionary God. So, what does this mission look like practically then? Well, we enter into mission every Monday from his wounds. From the wounds of our strength and weakness Messiah, this means we will take a posture of mercy toward others with no pointed fingers of condemnation. This means we will invite others into the safe arms of our strength and weakness Messiah. And this means we will walk the path of self-sacrifice and self-giving love. And from this text, three key characteristics will mark us. Number one, joy. In this text, when the risen Jesus comes to those fearful disciples, they are filled with irrepressible joy. This is where mission starts. As Leslie Newbigin says, mission begins with an explosion of joy. Of course, the good news that the crucified Jesus is alive is news that cannot possibly be suppressed. Amen? Amen. Secondly, peace. Of course, peace accompanies us wherever we go. In Matthew, Jesus blesses the peacemakers. Man, do we need a lot of peacemakers in our world today. People who will risk to make peace. As Jesus was sent right into the world's suffering to bring peace, now we are. The church is sent right into the world's suffering to make peace. In other words, the gift of peace that we experience through an encounter with Jesus is not to stay inside. It's to manifest, manifest itself outwardly, testifying to the world what true peace from the true Prince of Peace really looks like. And thirdly, we forgive, we forgive, we forgive, and we proclaim that forgiveness, we proclaim release from condemnation. Release from shame, release from bondage that can only be found in Jesus. We enter into the sins of the world and we tell people the good news that because of his wounds, we can be free. So three key marks as we are scattered. Joy, peace, and forgiveness. That should characterize us in the world. As I close, I'm going to invite the worship band up here. So it's my hope and prayer that all of us here at PVCC will go from here and be missionaries, not to a faraway country, but right here bringing the presence of Jesus with us in every sphere of life, in the home, in the workplace, in the neighborhood, in the school, in sports events, and all other public spaces where God has placed us. Because the nations have come here, right? The nations have come here. And it's not an easy mission, And it is a costly mission because it will always involve the way of the cross. It will always involve self-sacrifice and giving of ourselves. But we can be greatly encouraged. We can leave here greatly encouraged because we can look at what happened with those first disciples. Remember, they weren't the sharpest tacks in the drawer. (laughs) and they're stuck in a locked room full of fear. And yet, after meeting the risen Jesus and with the power of the Spirit, they moved out to accomplish amazing things. Within 300 years, only 300 years, it's estimated there are around six million believers in the world, six million. As a result of this small, motley crew of fearful disciples and we can also be encouraged because he, the risen Jesus is already working in every sphere of your life and he is with you, he is in you and you can simply go and participate in what he's already doing. Amen? Amen. Well, if you would like prayer this morning, there will be friends up here to my right that would love to pray with you. Now receive this benediction. As we will now scatter to participate in the mission of God by the power of the Spirit, let me remind you of the words of Teresa of Avila. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with mercy on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good in this world. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. So go now in the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.